Hello, and welcome to Film Kid Asks, the podcast where I ask questions to working professionals in the film industry from the perspective of someone just getting started. My name is Jordan, and today I'm joined by Jeremy Webb, a director who has worked on projects like The Umbrella Academy, Downton Abbey, Altered Carbon, and more recently, Shadow and Bone, just to name a few of his impressive credits. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. So I'd like to start with prep, because it's obviously such an important part of the process. What is your favorite part of prep? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, um, prep is super important. I mean, there's a phrase that I like, which uh, which goes, you, you make the film in prep. Um, uh, you, you ruin it when you shoot it, and then you put and then you fix it in post. So, um, so, so, so prep's really, really important. If you prep well, then you've got a you've got a pretty good um, chance of making a decent film or television show. I think the most important is finding the cast. If you're doing a pilot or a feature, you know, finding the cast and casting is uh, is ex- very exhilarating. Um, especially on something like Shadow and Bone, where you know we were finding you know brand new talent, and and you know when you discover those people, then you know that's that's really really thrilling. I mean, I, I, when I was at film school, I think I mean I had Stephen Frears as a tutor, and he one of the things that I've always held on to is that he says you you. you You've got your script, but really you'll make your story about the people that you cast. I kind of wanted to ask about that, actually, because Shadow and Bone, obviously, it is a fairly inexperienced cast. Like, by and large, obviously, you have Ben Barnes and a few people who have worked quite a bit. But for the most part, it's people who, you know, have done maybe a few projects. So I kind of wanted to ask, were there any challenges uh, with working with such a largely, you know, fresh cast? I mean, um I came in towards the end to do the season finale. So by then they were sort of, they, they'd been up and running and they were cooking. I guess what you have is an extraordinary amount of raw talent and huge amount of energy. And, and I think they just need to be reminded perhaps of the technical stuff. You know, I'd say to Archie, sorry, what did you say? <laughs> you know, it was in his eyes. But sometimes, you know, diction or projection or, or just reminding them exactly where they are in scenes, you know, where they've just come from, because the whole thing has been, you know, shot completely out of sequence, as we know. And sometimes it's the best thing, you, the best direction you can give to an actor is you've just come from this scene. You know, and they go, oh, shit, of course, I forgot. You're right. And as a director, you've earned your money for the, you know, for the day because probably nobody else was going to tell him or her that yeah casting super exciting and then my the next thing which is really paramount is to figure out where the world takes place and to find those locations and that's probably one of my most enjoyable parts because in the early stages you know you the pressure's a bit off and you go out and you ride around and before covid you'd have lunch and get to know the team and you know especially when you get to go to fly somewhere like hungary and you haven't been there before. You get to walk around these amazing palaces in Budapest and you go, and I get paid too. Wow. You know, that's all right. I really enjoy that. So I think those are my two, the, the, they're the first things that you do once you get a script honed is, is casting and locations. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Nothing like piling into a sweaty bus and having some laughs. Um, yeah, but it's different now. And the COVID restrictions, when we'd be doing that, I think we, were, we had these huge buses and you were allowed three people on them. And you'd uh, and you'd be sort of masked up as well, but uh, that that's a different thing. Let's let's talk about shooting without COVID at the moment. But unless there's any COVID questions that you're interested in, yeah, we might get to that. Um, but I kind of I kind of want to talk more loosely about in general what your process is because hopefully yeah. we're hoping that COVID you know 
will be resolved in the next year, I'm hoping. So yeah, so I kind of just want to dive into like your usual process. So I guess kind of going off the prep thing, what do you usually look for when you're breaking down a script? Uh, Again, another really good question. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that you do, but the, the, main, the main headlines for me are, does it draw me in early on when I read it? Just really simple stuff like that. And if not, why not? You know, if I'm at page 10, I'm going, eh, I'm not really feeling anything, you know? So, I mean, the job of when you're invited to come on a show, whether you're doing the pilot or whether you're coming in to do episodes further down the line, is uh, you are obviously invited very much to, you know, your your response to that first read of the script when it's been through the writer's room and all that stuff is really important. And and I think the first thing is you do is you do a bunch of notes on that script and it will be about, you know, is it working for you? Are you feeling it? Does it draw you in? Are the scenes, does is does enough happen? You know, it's very easy. Oh, this is really well read, but actually what's happening? Do the, do the events turn, do the scenes turn? Are, are, are there... Are there definite events that happen in every scene? Does the story move forward even in a small way in every scene? You know, if, if it's not, what's it doing in the, in the, you know, in the episode? What, what's, what's fresh about it? And if it's not, how can I make it fresh? You know, you go, I've seen this. Can we not do this? Or try, so you just, the, the relationship you have with the writer producers is they, they really want those notes because they've lived with this for quite some time and they've, they, they may be working on other episodes by the time you know you read it and and they haven't read it for a bit and you you can bring things to light that they hadn't thought about or had forgotten or you know a a, a really detailed interrogation of the script that you're being asked to direct um is is the first process I think um and obviously looking to see if there's any real kind of character development moments as well that that you're in charge of um and then I guess I think looking at um what are the really tough things to figure out? You know, is there a big battle? Is there a dragon attack? You know, is, is um, well, that's a big priority. I need to obviously, you know, dedicate this much prep to figuring out how we do that. And also, is it, un- is it un- unrealistic on the page? You know, and I think that's an important conversation to have with producers quite early on saying, do we really have the money for this? You know, is this, uh, they go, oh yeah, yeah, we, we're keeping our powder dry. Don't worry, this is, is going to happen. That can often change through the process of prep. Well, you know, we said we had the money. Well, maybe we don't. But um, uh, yeah, so I think that that's important as well. Kind of going off the notes thing, because I know obviously in film, that's one thing where the director obviously has a lot more time in prep and we're reworking the script. But yeah, is it usually just like one round of notes? How receptive, I guess, are is it like dependent on the producer if they want the notes or yeah, I guess, I guess I'm curious cause I haven't heard much about the note process in television. Um, so yeah, if you, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more about that, if it's like a thing that you do throughout the whole prep phase or, or yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm constantly, I mean, you know, what's the other cliche that the script's never finished. So you're, you're always trying to find ways to make it better. You know, whether it's, I mean, it's, it gets it gets written three times, really, doesn't it? It gets written in prep, it gets written when you shoot it, it gets written a third time when you cut it. So always you're looking to find ways to make it better. And I think I've been very lucky, all the teams that I've worked with, um, I mean, I think, I mean, I've really worked with Netflix pretty solidly for the last four years. And I find that the teams that I've been able to work with on, on that particular network are very collaborative um and and very inclusive and and really want you to jump in and and make it better i mean obviously there's a line where they go no we really like it like this until they see the cut and you go well 
you didn't want me to change it. So there you go. Gone are the days now, certainly at the level that I've been able to get myself to. It's it's not a, you know, seven-day shoot, seven-day prep, seven-day shoot like it used to be in, in like network television. You know, I think now the, the whole streaming world has elevated uh, the, the art form to something which is extraordinary to be involved with at the moment. I mean, you know, we, we, we mainly talk about what's streaming rather than what's at the movies, particularly at COVID, you know, during COVID, right? The process has very much become, um, you know, more and more like, like a film, but obviously far more condensed and, and you make 10, 55-minute episodes in, in nine months. So that's like making four movies, five movies. No, it's crazy. The... You know, condensed timeline it's just so impressive especially on the big productions that have so many moving parts so yeah so kind of you know speaking of television you've worked almost exclusively in tv what draws you to that format as a director i i thought it would be very much a way to get to doing movies but then the then pretty much as i said before the art forms change so massively and and also the great thing about being invited to be involved in the sort of high-end TV stuff is it, it actually has a start date. Whereas um, I have been involved in, de- in developing a number of movie scripts, you know, over the years and, and they, they just haven't happened for some reason or the money's fallen out. I like the fact that you get invited towards these extraordinary, you know, into these extraordinary shows and, and it's definitely going to happen. You're going to do it. And you'll, be sh- you'll definitely be shooting in six weeks. That means I, I've, I've been able to tell a lot of stories or be, be invited, uh, you know, to contribute to the telling of a lot of stories. So I really, I really like that. And I also like the fact that, you know, I, I'm, I'm in and I'll be involved and I'm immersed in it. And then I'm, then I'm gone, you know, and I'll go and get involved with another team in another place. I like, I like that, you know, rather, rather than perhaps being on the same project for two years. I enjoy the variety and, and the different worlds that I get invited to. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So kind of touching on the fact that you, you've you worked, obviously, in the UK and also in North America and now Budapest. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the kind of work cultures in these different places, specifically in North America versus the UK? Yeah, well, that, again, that's a really good question. I think in the UK, the to be honest, I think in television, the director perhaps has more power. You're normally hired for a longer period of prep and, and you're also asked to contribute to the editing process for a, for a longer period of time after you're uh, after you finish shooting and then I think the the US I think it's the other way around in, in a lot of shows in the US um, your prep is normally smaller you, you jump in I mean less so now on the bigger shows but uh, historically you, you'd sort of be in and out and you'd really get more of a sense of it being a producer controlled environment rather than a director controlled environment that's less so on the bigger shows now and and that's changing and i think just the scale of the shows that you that you that the are made in america or funded by the americans they're just bigger you know the, the budgets are larger the ambition is bigger because of the money um and and it, and and you're working with bigger armies and bigger tools you know um larger crews more drones more cranes just there's just bigger budgets because the reach of the product is you know is is far and wide compared to what the uk makes but i mean the, the uk's got an extraordinary reputation of for television but somehow i don't know how they do it for the money i mean i think in the us the unions are really strong so they the the budgets have to be higher because they demand their union rate the unions aren't as strong in in, in europe that's interesting i didn't know yeah. that 
which is often, I mean, which there's a, there's a reason why there are so many productions in Hungary at the moment, because the Americans know they can go over and, and employ very good Hungarian crews and not pay them as much as American crews. Yeah. I mean, well, that's even in Canada a little bit, uh, you have some advantages. Let's not forget North Hollywood. Yeah. So yeah, so you do quite a lot of... I just forgot one other thing about working in the US. It, it pays far, vastly better than the UK. That is a nice advantage. <laughs> Which is another reason why you see, you know, it, I mean, it, it's quite a sort of classic kind of career progression. If you work in the UK for a bit, you, you're going to end, end up working on US shows because you, there's you know, the incentive, you know, more ambitious shows, more toys to play with, bigger cast, you know, and, and just bigger shows and, and more money is obviously appealing. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of places like Australia and the UK and even Canada where it's these kind of talent growing places where you get to a point eventually and then you just migrate out once you get to reach a, a certain point. But yeah, but it seems like there's great communities in all of those kind of film hubs that, you know, kind of grow talent, whether that be crew or cast. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's it's the kind of smaller film industries are a good place to kind of develop those skills, though. So it's good. So yeah, so you kind of work obviously a lot with these kind of high concept sci-fi fantasy TV shows. What draws you to those types of stories specifically? I mean, I grew up being very much influenced by, you know, Spielberg and Lucas and John Carpenter during the 70s and 80s, you know, um, and, 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 and definitely that's one reason I, I, did, I was a fan of genre. You know, I, I, I was the kid who went to the sort of, you know, the, the kind of nerd shop and bought copies of Fangoria and played around with prosthetic makeup. And J.J. Abrams' Super 8 was pretty much how I spent my early teens. I mean, I was, I was, I was doing that kind of thing. So the fact, the fact that I do it now proper is sometimes I have to pinch myself. And I, so I really do like that stuff. I like all the, the, the other toys you get to play with. You know, I, I do like you know, figuring out the concept design for the monsters and the lighting and and, and all the world building, I think, is fascinating and, and really exciting when you see it come together, particularly on, on something that was as fresh as Shadow and Bone. I, I thought that all came together so well. It, it, it's, um, I think I'm drawn towards stories with, you know, real kind of fascinating insights into the human condition first, you know. And I think if I read a fantasy piece that doesn't have that, then I'm not really interested in it. You've got, you've got to get that bit right, otherwise all the work on the monsters and creatures doesn't really count for anything in case and then unless you're you know you're rooting for you know what's at stake for for the you know human condition and the characters the priority to get that right is is paramount and and the rest is exciting dressing and 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 stuff but i think and, and i mean i've you know i've, I've done a, a lot of high concept but not all that and i think i've just it's nice to be able to do both so i think it's it's human and character you know humanity and character first I don't necessarily care what world they're in, um, but I, I would be lying if, I, if I'm not excited by, by genre worlds and, and high concept ideas. Of course. So as you mentioned, you do also work outside of the kind of high concept sci-fi and fantasy stuff. So what, uh, what do you think, do you think it's important, I guess, to be as a director, especially in television, more adaptable to different genres? Or do you think it's better to kind of like specialize and is that really important? I think you want to be as open and and as flexible as possible, but I, but I think you should. Uh, I mean, you will get those frightening questions where people say, well, "What do you really care about? What what is it you want to see? What what kind of stories do you want to tell?" 
you know, I always found that quite difficult to answer, really. You know, I'm being, you know, sort of not particularly radical or political. I guess my, my easy answer to that is that I'm fascinated with the human condition in, in all its hilarity and terror and warmth and thrills and adventure. You know, I think that's that can happen in Downton and that can happen in, in, in Shadow, you know, Shadow and Bone. I mean, I think that, that's where I sit. If I think I'm, a, if I think about the kind of director that I, would be happy to be compared to be, be certainly in, on a television level. It'd be like Ron Howard, you know, where he does it all, you know, and he does it all, and his he does it so well, mostly throughout. He he does the the drama, the comedy, and I, I, I think he sort of leans in very much to that position. He's just fascinated with people. Not it doesn't really matter what world they're living in. Yeah, that completely makes sense. So kind of going off the human condition, how do you make sure that the performances stay grounded in these kind of very high concept situations that are out of, you know, normal human condition things? Um, and yeah, and just make sure that it's really resonating on that emotional level. Well, I, I mean, that, that always starts with finding the right cast. That's half, that's nearly all the battle. You, you know, if you've cast right and you've discussed I suppose, a, a detailed backstory of where these people are existing and what the rules of the world are so, you know, and, and find something that they can relate to that's, that's real as a, perhaps a metaphor or comparison, whether it's Stalinist Russia or Nazi Germany or, you know, and comparing it to what it, you know, it's a bit like this, it's a bit like that. So people could understand the rules of high concept worlds. I think it's often a tool that I use, you know. You know, when we were doing Merlin, it was often um, a fascist regime, and and in you're the Jews in this, you know, in this scenario, and and you know, trying to give them things to really hook into and compare. Yeah, that again, that totally makes sense. Kind of switching more to the crew side of things. Obviously, a lot of your job centers around relationships and creative partnerships. How do you foster those relationships with producers, cinematographers, actors, etc., to achieve your vision for the project, but also create a collaborative environment for everyone to work in? Yeah, I mean that's another really good question. I mean, if you deal with the produ- the, the producer relationship first within the American television situation now especially on a big Netflix show. I mean, obviously I've been working on, some, on something like the Umbrella Academy for some time, so there's a shorthand. When you're selected to sort of, you know, come into a script, the show, the, you know, obviously the producer that you're collaborating with is, is normally the writer too, or one of the writers on the show. So that's about a meeting of minds and I suppose a trust, a trust building exercise between the, you know, the both of you. I mean, writing and directing are two very different things and very few people can do both well. And I think a a good writer really wants a director to amplify it and to, you know, visualize it and to make it better, you know, and and to to do things with what they've written uh, that they perhaps weren't even expecting. And I think the process certainly in prep is to, is to find a middle ground where you can say, well, this is how I see it. We could do this. And and that chimes in tonally with what they were thinking. But then you add another 30% to it as a director and go, but if, if that's how you're feeling, well, then what about this? And those, those discussions are delicate. The more they happen, the more uh, th- that particular producer will, will s- the more that you can make it clear what you plan to do and the more that you can show them. Uh, examples and references 
so that they feel confident that they're going to give you their baby to then turn into a fully, you know, able, you know, adolescent or grown up. I mean, and that takes that takes some time. And I think it also it's a trust building. And I think ultimately the the relationship is forged finally when it's done, and and they see what you did, and then hopefully they invite you back for more and recommend you for other projects. And and but it, it's a delicate process. And then I think where it doesn't work is where you have when you don't have a meeting of minds and and the director comes in and doesn't understand the tone of the writing and and doesn't understand how to to keep the producer writer with you but also you know build on it and 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 show him what you want to do with it or him or her what you want to do with it so i think that that was those relationships and then you know it it takes some time and and it takes quite a lot of work from a from a, a director in that position to 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 get the producer to a point where they feel you're my guy. I completely trust you. You'll figure it out, and that happens through prep and through pe- and and through the shoot. Sometimes they're on set, maybe they're not. It depends on how they want to work. And then obviously you get an opportunity to to edit it in post, and then and then they'll see a cut. And and there's nothing like the email from an enthused producer, showrunner slash you know writer who who just you know sends you the the most enthusiastic email about the cut that you've been that you've worked on together and and just said it's it's you know better than I could ever have hoped you know that so those those relationships you know obviously he's he or she has hired you so so it's it's a delicate process but it can be a really rewarding and exciting one i think with with the with the cinematographer I mean, again that's about a meeting of minds that's understanding about even though you've got a really good idea about what and how you want to do it, you, you're crazy if you don't understand what they can bring to the table. It's not unlike the reverse situation in, in some respects, you know, that in a sense now I'm like the producer writer and, and he's the director. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like that in the sense that you invite him in because he or she is really talented. You know, you want to make sure that you get the best of what he or she can offer. And again, that's about, you know, both being super prepared, both being having an understanding of what's on the page. And then that's, that's sort of true of all departments. I think you've got to have, in, in, certainly in, in American television, you've got to have a good understanding about what you and the, and the writer-producer want and what each department can contribute to it. That I am sense. curious. Yeah, that, again, all checks out, makes sense. Um, but specifically with television and the cinematographer, I guess what do those early conversations look like? Because they have usually, unless you're doing the first episodes, they've usually worked on the project and are more familiar with the project than you would be. So when you're kind of designing what the cameras should look like for different scenes, I imagine it's very, yeah, it's also very much leaning on them and their experience with lighting, what those scenes should look like and how they've covered it before. So I guess where where do you find the balance of like your voice and and finding that with what's already been established? Yeah, I mean, I think coming in to do a pilot, that's a different thing because you're kind of figuring out the visual language, you know, afresh. When you're jumping in doing episodic work, there's a language that's sort of been set up. For example, on Umbrella Academy, we use a lot of wide lenses. We, we always try and be quite low and shoot underneath the eye line. Is just a sort of cool style that that kind of makes the show seem kind of different and a little weird and a little sort of surreal. Um, it's just very pleasing because we shoot on this um, um, on the Alexa sixty five, which is like shooting on seventy millimeter film. So the definition it just looks really special and inviting, you know. But Craig and and Neville, who are the sort of the two DPs on the show, try and preserve that. 
um, but at the same time, there's always there's always space to try and find, you know, new ways or, or playful stuff within that style. You know, and, and 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 constantly the style is evolving, even on a show that says, "Or oh, we, we we this is kind of the way we like to approach it." But I think the, the successful episodic director that jumps on a show like that understands the style, gets it, and and then brings, if you like, something to it. I imagine that's a very kind of collaborative, especially if you're new to the project. I, I suppose that's a very important relationship to kind of, yeah, work with, ex- playing within the rules of the world that they've established, but kind of like exploring the edges of it, <laughs> I guess. I mean, to give you an idea of a process, I mean, obviously when I've worked with Craig before, we have a long session where we just sit down with a, with a storyboard artist and, and talk through scenes and, and, and start to get a sense about what, what are the, the really expressive and relevant relevant frames that we're after for for these particular scenes and we'll have a, you know, a long session and, and build up a selection not necessarily all of them that we would shoot but we, we do quite a lot of storyboarding on the show because we have good prep time there's time and there are there are the resources I mean even this time because we were in lockdown for two weeks well we were in quarantine for two weeks we uh, we used some software so that we could because we none of us could all be in the same room so we had yeah, a, a sort of a, a, a gaming software uh, with a company in um, in LA, and we do Zoom sessions where we could actually move the characters around and move the cameras around, and, and actually build do sort of little animatics this time because of COVID, where we couldn't really all get around a, a storyboard artist pen and paper, which which was great. Tech is so exciting. There's so many exciting new tools that are being introduced. That yeah, that I think Corona has kind of exp- expedited. Is that the word that I'm looking for? Yeah. Hurried it up. (laughs) Hurried it up. That's the one. Um, So I kind of am curious. We talked a little bit about your process working with actors, but how has your process evolved over the span of your career? And is there any advice for young directors that you have that maybe anything that you've learned from from your vast experience that you can pass on to us uh, us movies? I mean, I think I mean when when I was when I was at film school, there were there were always this thing about rehearsal. Um, and what what is that thing? And um, there was a directing tutor that just said, look, it's not that complicated. You just need to get all their stuff out of the way, get all their questions out of the way. That's a rehearsal, you know? So, so because what you don't want to be doing is answering all that stuff on the floor because there's not the time. A good rehearsal is an opportunity for, for actors to ask all the questions about their character and where they've been and what they want and, and why they say this particular line and could it be changed? And perhaps it could, perhaps it, you know, perhaps their version of it isn't better than what's on the page, but at least they've been heard. The rehearsal time is so important to get really all that stuff out of the way so that you're not dealing with that. And that's probably the most important thing that I learned there. So, so f- whether it's a student film or whether it's, your, you know, it's a, a paid job, fight for your rehearsal time to get that out of the way. Um, and a lot of we did, a lot of it we did on, um, on Zoom with the Umbrella Academy when we were getting ready for season three. Um, and then I think once you get all, get all that out of the way, then I think, and they know and they're, they're confident with, with what they're doing. And sure, you can run some scenes and you can even, if there's anything particularly difficult in terms of uh, blocking a fight or, or, or a large scene with lots of people, call a rehearsal and, and figure all that blocking out. Because if you don't do that before the day, then you, you're doubling your work. And, and then I think really when it comes if you can, when you come to it, you know, on, when you're shooting, the less said to them, the better, because you've done all that work. So ideally, you know, you, you, you cast it right, 
get the rehearsal done so that you've asked, answered all the questions and got some good kind of blocking diagrams set in your head. And, and then you would have had a conversation perhaps with, a, with your DP about what's the right photographic approach and potentially if it's a big scene, whether you need more than one camera. Um, and then I think it's about not getting in the way of the furniture. And, and, and I think some directors think that you've got to have long conversations about character on set because it shows that you're directing. No, bad idea. Do it in rehearsal, get it all out of the way. You know, so you've got, you and your actors know why they're in the scene, what they want in the scene, and, and what they're going to do about getting what they want in scenes. And then, um, you know, and then I, I have these two things which I find really simple. I, I can't remember which book I read, but um, it was just fact, facts and verbs were uh, the two little tricks that I use. Are you, are you familiar with those? Okay, well, it's, I mean, it's the difference between, you know, you know um, directions that create behavior um, as opposed to directions that demand behavior. So it's the difference between flirt with him rather than, can you be really sexy now? You know, it's, or, or um, interrogate as opposed to, you know, uh, get angry. You know, uh, it, it's a subtle difference, but actors will, will, are always about action verbs and, and things that they can physically do to other actors. So, so it's a really good to bone up on, on what are your verbs for scenes in terms of behavior that you want to create. Um, and, and the other one is what I mentioned earlier is facts. You know, just, uh, you just came from this scene. That should be all they need sometimes. Yeah, I mean, that is a phenomenal, phenomenal amount of good advice. Um, I'd actually never, I feel like rehearsal is something that isn't really talked about in film school or hasn't been yet, for me at least. So that is valuable because I think that's, that was one of those things that was like a big question mark. Obviously run the scenes, but what is, what is the goal? What is, yeah. So I think that is really great advice. Um, and then I have one more question before I pass it on to a few of my classmates. And that is just more loosely, what advice would you give to someone who is starting their career right now and is aspiring to be a successful television director in your position one day? Yeah, I mean, it's good that you said that you, you're specific about what I am. I mean, a, a movie script, I mean, I'm developing a couple of things, but if, if you want to be successful in doing high-end, sort of big American stuff, but here, here's, here's the thing, um, you, you've got to be making films any length, any format, um, and if you're a writer-director, then you need to be writing and directing them. If you can't write, then see if you can learn. Um, and if you, and if, you if you figure out that you can't learn how to write, then find friends who can and become friends <laughs> and become teams. And then you need to be making these films because ultimately what you're going to be, if you're not making these films, and I said any format, film, video, whatever, you know, even on your phone, it, 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 it'll, if you make enough of them, you'll be, you, you will just naturally be honing your talent. And I think, you know, um, ultimately what you've got to do is try and convince somebody to hire you in any position as a director, you know. And I think my, after, after I graduated from film school, I eventually got a job directing a, a kid's TV show. So, you, you know, and you, you may get better than that from your, from your first gig. Some of my contemporaries did. They... No one's going to hire you unless you've got lots of stuff to show them. And, and every film that you make, you'll, you'll normally get better. I think it's all about, once you graduate from film school, it's just finding that person, whether it's a producer, whether it's a sponsor, whether it's an agent, to convince a producer to give you a shot. 
and I think I mean that there's that, uh, there's the question about whether I mean I don't know what specializations everybody in whether some of you are studying editing or whether you're doing directing or whether you're doing uh, screenwriting but th th there was I mean some directors come from other specializations you know some come from being assistant directors some come from being editors cameramen the trouble with doing that is is that you to change careers further down the line I mean you you will to, to be good enough to be considered to change from being say a cameraman to a director you will have already ha have a certain standard of living because you'll, you'll be good enough and be busy as a cameraman and you have to accept that if you're going to go directing that your um your career status will drop if you if if directing is what you really want to be doing then you should just be going after that um and be making stuff and writing stuff as as many as you can you know as many films as you can as soon as possible you know would be my advice so i mean so to give you an idea about my route and also you're going to have to find a way to make money <laughs> so which is the tough part so if you need to find a way to make money that may be in the industry or that may not be in the industry if it's in the industry and you're a pa or you're a you know, then you're still going to have to find time after you've been working a 14-hour day as a PA to try and find a way to make your films. Uh, maybe you don't work in the industry. Maybe you do a, a, you know, just do a money-making job and you allocate time to make your films. Maybe that's a way to do it. Um, or, or maybe you don't need to make money. Maybe you're rich. That's great. Just be rich and then just make your films, you know? so that's The dream. That, that right there is the dream. <laughs> then you don't need to do it. Uh, i tell you how I did it. I was a PA uh, at a production company. Um, and I started to write my my own stuff at night and and made a short film. Um, at that that got me a place at, at the National Film School, which is kind of like the AFI equivalent. And those sort of academies that are that are quite well considered by the industry can can put you they can put you in the spotlight for a short period of time because you're a graduate from that kind of academy. And that that's another way of doing it. But I still had a, there was another director who's a contemporary of mine who's way more successful than I am he didn't go to he didn't go to film school and we were both PAs together um, he applied to the same film school he didn't get in but he he just he did it the other route he managed to make a bunch of short films and, and got an agent and that agent convinced the producer to give him his, his first television game so there are different ways Every time I do these interviews, I ask, like, how did you get to where you are? And everyone has the same answer, which is, well, I actually have fairly a fairly unique story. And I'm like, everyone has a fairly, there's no, like, path, you know? That's one thing that I've uh, I've definitely learned from these. It's it's great if you can find somebody to, to help you along so you're not too poor getting there. You know, whether it's parents or a boyfriend or a wife or a husband, you know, that, that can help you. Um, and, and I think... Finally, my wife is paying the dividends now. She doesn't need to work, so that's fine. Um, but there was quite a lot of supporting early on, particularly when I was a mature student. I didn't go to film school until I was kind of 26, so quite a lot later, because I'd been working in the I'd been working in the industry before for about three years. The good thing about working as a PA and making your own films is that that you'll come across crew that will help you out, give you equipment perhaps that you wouldn't have access to if you weren't working in the industry. So that's a good that's a good reason to. You know, work in the industry, but still have your eye on that directing chair as soon as you possibly can. Yeah. So I'm going to open it up to a couple of my friends now. Hello. Nice to meet you. Um, so I guess my question is, do you have any like horror stories or like situations that stand out to you that you really learned from? Maybe they happened like earlier on in your career. <laughs> 
actually, yeah, I, the first horror story, I, I, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, there's a couple I can tell you about. The short film that I made, uh, I was using so many different favors from this production company, you know, insuring equipment really without doing it the right way around, um, you know, stealing film cans from the, from the fridge in the office. Uh, and then once I'd made the film, wouldn't shut up about it. Um, so they fired me, you know, which is, uh, you know, I, I, it would have been much better to have kind of left that company with a blessing and stuff. But basically they were basically get out. You've take, you're, you're, you're taking the piss. So I think you should always be a little bit braver than you think you should be, but it's, it's great to kind of, I don't know. I look, I look, I have two, I have two thoughts about that. I think I did everything I needed to do to get myself on the map, but I think I was perhaps a little bit like a bull, bull in the china shop as well. I was, if I could do that again, I think I would do it more gracefully. Um, it's always trying, even though you're ambitious, it's important to kind of keep people liking you. How people feel about you and how they, how you are to work with is probably equally as important as what you can actually do. Nobody, nobody really wants to work with people who are horribly unpleasant and, and don't respect others. Thank you. Thank you. Fair enough. <laughs> There's one more horror story as well. And this was actually on a show in America. Uh, I got the stage wrong and I was late as a director. And I walked in. I thought, where's the crew? And then the, uh, the AD came looking for me and said, we're not on this stage today. We're, we're on the other stage. And I walked in and, and there were, everyone was waiting for me and looking at me. And I hadn't quite figured out a couple of things on, on, on how to block the scene. And I had to just think on my feet and do it there straight. I was basically going straight into a rehearsal. So that, that was, I, I will always double check exactly what stage I'm on when I go in in the morning and make sure that uh, that never happens again. So that, that was pretty horrific. Yeah. <laughs> and actually that wasn't, that, that wasn't too long ago. So it can, it can still bite you in the ass. Never, never get too confident. Yeah, sometimes you just need to be humbled. Um, I have more of a technical question, which I think is kind of missed in film school, is regarding all the union stuff. And I was wondering, at what point in your career did you join a union since to work on bigger production, you kind of have to be part of them. Like, is there anything that you didn't know when you were starting, just because it's kind of a blank in your education right now? In the UK, you can just go ahead and you don't need to be part of a union to be hired as a director. Uh, that's that's utterly different in the United States and the same in Canada that you have to be part of the union. So it's kind of like a different, it, it's kind of like a catch-22 situation starting out because you you can't get a job in, certainly in American television, unless you're part of the Directors Guild. And, um, and you have to be um, approved by two existing members of the Directors Guild and you have to have a contract um, by a studio um, or a network that that wants you to be hired as a director. Kind of a catch twenty two. The the how I got into the American Union is because I uh, you know an episode of Downton Abbey that I did got some some award attention. Um, so the union fancied the idea that I should be part of the of the directors guild because you know I, I and 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 I had a job offer because I had some. Um, should we call it some Emmy heat, which is always nice to have, even if, even if it only happens once in your life. Yeah, it's, it's really tough to get into the American Union because you, you can't do it unless they get you, give you a job. And uh, yeah, so you've got to find a way to circumnavigate that. I'll tell you what happened when I was in Budapest doing a show for Universal called Treadstone. 
they re they really wanted somebody just to fly over to the UK to do some ex some additional photography. So I I suggested a, a friend of mine who I knew was a really good second unit director, but he wasn't in the DGA. Um, and sometimes you can get situations like that where uh, he was allowed to start shooting under the understanding that he would, um, because the studio was prepared to hire him based on his credits, uh, um, and he was allowed to do the shooting as long as he agreed to join the DGA. And joining the DGA, I think, I think currently is now $17,000 to join. Yeah. Uh, that's another thing. Yeah. They go, oh, be in the union. Oh, that's great. And this is how much it's going to cost you. So, but that said, it's one of the best trade unions in the world. It has the best healthcare, which obviously doesn't imply if, if you're, you know, in the can in Canada or UK and, and they really do look after you to make sure that you're paid the, the, the right rate going forward. And also they look after your residual payments, which is, uh, when your shows are shown all around the world, you continue to be paid off them, which is really nice. So there's uh, often, you know, checks that come through the post that the DGA oversee to make sure that you continue to get royalties from the episodes that you direct. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, my question, I think this will dovetail nicely about what you were saying about producing as much work as possible. Um, like, I'd love to be a director. And I think one thing I've noticed is kind of this, um, not so much a pressure, but maybe this kind of desire to have my own distinct visual style one day. So I was wondering, is taste and style, like, is that something you acquire over time? Or how can you kind of work on your own personal aesthetic? I imagine it probably takes a long time to do, but I just wanted to know your thoughts. Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it comes down to what are the kind of stories that you like telling? How do you, how do you like to make audiences feel? Style isn't just there for a style, style's sake, is it? It's style is, is a manipulation of reality to make an audience feel something. So I think once you figure out the kind of films that you that affect you and have meaning for you, you know, what, what are those emotions, you know, and, and, and is that something that you, you want to do for an audience? And then if, once you figure out whether it's kind of comedy or whether it's horror, whether it's thriller or, you know, um, or, or it's adventure or whether it's something more lyrical or poetic, I think once you understand what moves you um, and, and, and inspires you, um, then I think, and then if you can think about what style really supports those emotions. Yeah, so don't think of it as style for style's sake. It's a tool to make an audience feel emotion. That's well said. This question I have more regarding to Umbrella Academy. Um, Umbrella Academy has a lot of characters, especially in the main family. And I was wondering when you came on the show, if that was the first time you were approaching such a big cast, especially with those strong characters that had to have their own goals and their own ambitions. And how do you approach these kind of scenes? Do you go around talking to actors privately and how does that work and what did you learn from it? Yeah, it's not the first time I've done a family drama. Obviously I've done, you know, I, did, I was on Downton for a, for a good chunk of that. So that, that's a big family drama. I, I, I think, Bearing in mind, you know, your shooting time is so short. Absolutely, you're right. You should have some time during prep to make sure that, that people are happy with what they're doing, people understand what they're doing, uh, to get those questions out of the way so that they're not plaguing you on the set um, because, you know, that you, you, I mean, you can choose to have a half-hour conversation with an actor on the set if you want, but that will compromise perhaps what you want to do with, with shooting. So I think, you know, I think, 
everyone wants, every actor I think wants to know that the material that they have, especially in, in a big sort of elaborate multi-character piece, that first of all, they've got enough in the episode to do. Uh, and, and if not in that episode, you can reassure them perhaps that there's plenty that's going to happen for them in the next episode. But what they've got to do is is that they understand why they're doing what they're doing and and that, that perhaps it has an arc to it, that they start here and they end up there. So I, I think, yeah, it's part of your prep um, before you start shooting is to have those conversations, uh, whether they're with you or whether they're with you and the writer-producer. Because um, that's, that's, that's all you want. You want to do as much as you can in prep so that when you start shooting, there's a sense of planning, preparedness, um, you know, and confidence in what you're trying to achieve every day. You know, so you walk out there and then um, I mean, it can still all go completely wrong, but you've done your best to try and stop that happening. So much of what you do in preparation is to try and, you know, look into the future and, and try and anticipate what's going to take the time and what's going to go wrong. You know, and, and I think that's what your prep is for. As I said, you, you, you make the film in prep. You mess it up when you're shooting and then you, you correct it in, in the edit. <laughs> I, always, I always like that one. I think we've come full circle. I think that's pretty much the first thing you said. And uh, I think we should end it off there. But before we do finish this up, I did ask for five film recommendations, as I do with every guest that comes on. Um, so I'm very curious as to what you would recommend and, uh, and why. Well, some of them you've probably seen, some of them you won't. I was deliberately trying to find a couple that you won't have seen. Um, I would recommend The Killing by Stanley Kubrick, which is 1956. And this film... Uh, is a really wonderful black and white caper movie, which probably gave Quentin Tarantino all his great ideas about how to do non-linear narrative stories. 1955, I would urge you to see, especially if you're into horror and thriller, uh, Les Diaboliques by uh, Henry George Clouseau. It is an absolutely extraordinary uh, horror thriller about uh, two women who um, have a plan to kill the headmaster of a, of a crumbling kind of uh, boys school and it's got so it's brilliantly moody and um got some killer surprises um if you haven't seen again getting into an area of stuff that you probably have seen but you should watch again would be um children of men by alfonso Cuarón, which is the last half an hour of that film or 40 minutes is some of the most breathtaking mise-en-scene i think you'll ever ever see in terms of directing immersive unrelenting emotional action um and uh, the gorgeously stylish whiplash 2004 uh with damien chazelle if you haven't seen that yet watch it again uh, what a brilliant un brilliantly unusual story is why i recommend that you know um and 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 how stylishly it's presented and how fantastic uh, uh, what wonderful surprises that it gives you and lastly, one of my favorite films of all time, which I'm sure you've seen, but go back and do it again, is Steven Spielberg's Jaws. And I, and I think the first 40 minutes before you see the shark and just go back and watch it again and, and marvel at how, how brilliantly, it, I think it still stands out. I showed it to my two, two teenage girls the other day and they were terrified by it that it, all that stuff still works, how he creates that monster in your mind. And it's a great lesson about what you don't show. Yeah, I uh, I took my dad to see that for, they were doing a special showing at TIFF for Christmas and I hadn't seen it since I was like 14 and went through my big horror phase. 
And yeah, I was just blown away at the way that Spielberg crafts suspense in that film. It is, you just feel it so viscerally in your body, like as you're waiting for the the shark to come, especially because I hadn't, I didn't really remember it. I just remembered bits and pieces and yeah, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, just to go back and, and um, uh, the late seventies is when I came to uh, the States for the first time. So it's very nostalgic to me. I think Jaws had just come out and uh, swam in American oceans for the first time and, and shit, that music was always still with me. But uh, it's great. Just just watch it again and you can learn stuff from it. There's so many cool things in it. And, and stuff that, that, you, that, you, that you forget. How many single shots that he does without cuts? Look at it again. There's the famous one that he does on the, on the, um, uh, on the little ferry boat going, going across the water. You know, just crafts the camera and the actor. Just still mesmerizing. Yeah, the blocking in that film, there'll be shots where it will pan down and then someone will step in and it becomes a close-up and then it's back to being a wide shot uh, as they step out and it focuses on someone in the back. It's like this really intricate kind of dance of blocking that is just phenomenal. And it, yeah, it really minimizes the amount of cuts needed because it, you know, a wide shot becomes a close-up and then becomes something else. It's really such a masterclass in, in storytelling. I can't believe it was one of his first uh, his first films. Yes, he, he'd done a tremendous amount of directing before then, you have to remember. Um, and that he'd done, you know, if you look at his resume, how many short films he'd done, he'd done a number of episodes of television, he'd done Sugarland, he'd done The Duel. To add on that, that's basically Jaws before he made Jaws. And it's about a killer truck that a, that a man finds on, on, the, uh, you know, on a journey through the desert. I'll be sure to add that to the uh, to the list as well. But I think that is all that we have for questions. Uh, so thank you so much for talking about your, your journey, Jeremy. And thanks to those of you who ask questions. Uh, but I think that is all for this episode of Film Kid Asks. Be sure to watch Shadow and Bone now streaming on Netflix. And be sure to keep an eye out for season three of The Umbrella Academy. And be sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram or join our Facebook group for information about upcoming guests. New episodes come out every Saturday. 